The following program is brought to you by Caltech. Well, welcome. My name is Michelle Judd. I am the Managing Director of the Keck Institute for Space Studies. We are so excited to have you here tonight to hear this fantastic speaker. But before I introduce him, I'd like to just remind you of a couple of things. Uh, we are being filmed tonight in high definition, and Caltech will be featuring this video on iTunes U. So you are being recorded, um, well, the back of your heads anyway, and um, we'll be trying to capture uh, the entire lecture tonight for uh, the few people who could not make it tonight. Uh, so we uh, at the Keck Institute, when we uh, uh, have public lectures, they are generally associated with a study that we are currently doing. When we bring people in from all over the world to study a specific topic, this is no different. And when we do that, we like to share with the public uh, some of the talent that has gathered here um, this week. So I would like to take this time to introduce to you uh, George Jorgovsky. He is a professor of astronomy here at Caltech. He is the author or co-author of, get this, several hundred scientific publications, including over 250 refereed journals. He was one of the founders of the Virtual Observatory Framework and the emerging field of astroinformatics. Uh, Professor Dragovsky is also director of the Meta Institute for Computational Astrophysics and the co-director of the Center for Advanced Computing Research here at Caltech. He has been a, vi a visiting distinguished professor at the Mexican Academy of Sciences, a presidential young investigator, and has also received NASA honor awards. Pro professor Dragovsky's scientific interests include observational cosmology, origins and evolution of galaxies and quasars, digital sky surveys, development of the methodology for a computationally enabled data-intensive science for the 21st century, and so many other things. So please help me give a warm welcome to Professor George Jorgovsky. Well, thank you, Michelle, and thank you all for coming. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here tonight and tell you about some stuff that my friends and myself have been doing and speculating about. Um, and it's about science in cyberspace, which I'll explain shortly. There is a really profound transformation going on. And you know, people always try to figure out what future will be like. And through most of the 20th century, you know, science fiction writers and such imagine what 21st century might look like. But they got it all wrong. The technology that transformed our world was not flying cars and rockets. It was computing. And more precisely, I would say information technology, because for most part, we don't use computing, computers to compute anything. We use them to find and access information or communicate with each other. And it's, that's a very different use. So say if a time traveler from our era were to go back to 1950s, go to Mad Men ad agency or something, and tell them what the future is really going to be like, they'll probably be quite surprised. Um, so yes, even though we do use information technology for somewhat trite purposes, we also use it for our very uh, profound ones as well. And I think that what's going on now is really historically unprecedented. In the 19th century, give or take, 
decades, industrial revolution transformed the world. Before that, invention of printing, or at least European invention of printing, transformed the way we preserve and disseminate information and education. I think the information technology revolution combines the two, and it will have historical impact comparable to the sum of the two. And we're in the middle of it. It's very hard to recognize, I think, that you're in the middle of a historical transformation when you're in it. And I think only when looking back, people realize just how much the world has changed, and starting from the last couple decades of 20th century and still going on now. So science as well has been changed by information technology. And we talk about cyber science or e-science. And those terms really mean computationally enabled or data intensive science. And all sciences are undergoing this transformation, some more than the others. Astronomy tends to be ahead of many of the others. But that change also carries with it the need for new scientific methodology. As science evolves, methodology has to evolve. And what's happening now is really great synergy of computationally enabled science and then science-driven information technology. That's why some computer scientists like to work with us. Actually, this is kind of part of a bigger picture. In science itself, theory and experiment always feed off each other. It's not that one is more you know, superior to the other, takes the same amount of brains to do either one. Theory makes predictions, experiments challenge theory, and science progresses. Science then co-evolves with technology. A lot of our technology derives from scientific research, but then technology enables more, better science. Like the 1950s, some solid state physicists invented a little gizmo called transistor. And today, in my laptop, there is about lots of zillions of transistors. And they enable me to do science with my computer. And then, of course, science and technology together um, keep evolving our society and culture. That's been going on forever. But it's never been going on faster than today. And the pace of progress is, again, unprecedented because the timescales involved in change of the technology are so rapid, like Moore's law. So cyberspace, to define it loosely, um, is metaphorical space in which all of our information and informational constructs reside. And today, you can think of it as internet or other contents of the World Wide Web or internet as accessed by World Wide Web. And more and more, this is becoming the arena in which modern society does everything. This is where we work, whether we're office workers or scientists. This is how education is done. This is how we entertain ourselves, communicate. Everything is moving in, into cyberspace. And science, scholarship, education are not accepted from that. So today, I'd like to tell you a little bit exactly what is going on there. Nowadays, people like to talk about the fourth paradigm of doing science. And if you think historically, how did science change? It began, perhaps, in the days of Galileo, with what really started as the scientific method. And shortly thereafter, Isaac Newton started the analytical science. And both of those have served us well and continue to do so. But in the mid-20th century, something new happened, computers. And at first, they were used essentially to solve a lot of partial differential equations, 
do things like simulate explosions of atomic bombs and so on. And we still use them to do a lot of simulations, uh, number crunching, basically. But then, about 20 years ago or so, a different kind of computing started to appear. Data-driven computing, information-driven computing. Computing that's not about crunching numbers, but it's about manipulation and search for information. And that is what Jim Gray, the late great computer scientist who was a good friend and worked with us, named the fourth paradigm. You can quibble about how these things divide. It's one that does not replace the others. It's just it keeps adding to our arsenal of tools that we use to understand the universe. So there is a number of important trends that are changing science today. The, probably the most important root trend is the exponential growth of data in every science. I know that in astronomy, the volume of data doubles every year or year and a half. This is Moore's law and for exact same reason, because the technology gives us our data is technology of Moore's law. And moreover, the data are not just getting more abundant, but much more complex. Like we're measuring many more different things. And this is inevitable because to understand complex phenomena, say star formation or galaxy formation or biology or climate, you need a lot of complex data. So that there is a number of trends, some of which I listed here, that we transitioned from data poverty to embarrassing data glut. Um, and different sciences cope with this in different ways. We're also now changing from fixed data sets that are obtained once to data streams. Our instruments and sensors producing steady streams of data, which again increase exponentially and change all the time. So that kind of changes the way in which you think about the data because they're always different, right? And so your analysis has to evolve as well. Oftentimes now, we uh, have goals that require us to immediately process the data and, and derive something from them. Massive data streams and discovery of phenomena in them. I'll show you some examples of that later. Also, uh, one of the most important features of the web or everything that the internet enabled is that resources become distributed. Not just compute resources, not just data resources, but also human resources, talent. Um, and in the past, in order to really achieve something, you had to get the critical mass of people or, or resources in, in one building and, and, and then stimulus, they, they stimulate each other. But now, people can be anywhere in the world and collaborate just as well as if they're in a single building. And because the data are becoming so abundant, the value of the data themselves goes down. When the data were scarce, data were the currency of the realm in science. Ownership of the data was very important because that's where your science comes from. But when you have exponentially growing vast volumes of data that you can barely cope with, data are not worth very much. It's just like when government prints lots of money, the money is not worth very much. And uh, instead of that, the real value is moving to where it should be to the expertise and talent and creativity of people who use them. So here is schematically what typical modern, say, scientific process will be. First, we gather lots of data. That could be from telescopes, could be from sensor networks, seismographs, from gene sequencing machines, it doesn't matter. And then we have to put 
the data in some serialized form that we can find it and combine it, and that's called data farming. Um, because if it's not indexed and searchable, it's just pile of bits. And we know how to do this. We have really good technologies of databases and so on, and we've been doing that fairly well. Then comes the really interesting part, discovery of knowledge in these massive and complex data sets. And that has all manner of interesting new tasks like searches for anomalies, correlations, outliers, which is where we are working now to discover, you know, to implement new kinds of scientific tools that will actually enable us to do science with these amazing new data sets. And finally, we reach data understanding and new knowledge. That's, of course, what the goal of science is. That's where creativity and talent come in. And this is grossly oversimplified. There is feedback along this ladder all over, but I didn't want to clutter up the slide. So I've been thinking about this for some time now, and you know, like, why is this different? Why is this not same old stuff, just more data? And I came up with two important differences. The first one is that for the first time in history, we will not be able to see all of our data. There is too much data for humans to actually examine and, and look at. And that means we need to have reliable technologies that will mine the data for us and make sure everything is okay and so on. But then, a much more interesting reason is that the data sets that we have are becoming so complex, not just large, but so complex that they almost surely contain meaningful constructs that cannot be easily comprehended by human mind unaided. That there is so much complexity in our data that we just can't grasp it easily. And this is, of course, where the real goal should be. So those are profound differences. Science has been changed by this, and that's why there is a need for new scientific methodology, and that's on the basis of applied computer science, engineering, information technology. And of course, it's not just science. Every field, every modern society, whether it's commerce or industry or security, it doesn't matter, they all have the same problem or same set of problems. So the role of science is perhaps to invent, discover new things that can be then used elsewhere to better our society. So this is actually having a very important role. Well, what about astronomy? This is a teeny tiny little piece of a picture of near the galactic center, galactic bulge. And every bright dot is at least one star. There is probably at least one star in every pixel of this image. There are a lot of stars out there. Somebody once said there is as many stars in our galaxy as hamburgers that McDonald's has ever sold. And so roughly speaking, a couple of hundred billion in Milky Way alone, and then there is about 100 billion galaxies within the observable universe. That's a lot of stars. And so for each of these stars, when we run our sky surveys or, or galaxies, we measure maybe tens or hundreds of numbers. And typical sky survey may detect maybe a billion of these. So suddenly you have a data set that has a billion rows with hundreds of columns. And you can combine them with different wavelengths and so on. That's a lot of data. That's not an easy thing to deal with. So astronomy became very data rich in 1990s when we started having first serious digital sky surveys, begun by digitization of the old photographic plates and then moved to digital detectors. Caltech has 
always been in the forefront of these developments, first with sky surveys from Palomar, and then two micronal sky survey here at IPAC, and more modern uh, surveys at Palomar, like Palomar Quest and Palomar Transient Factory. And each of these surveys typically produced some tens of terabytes. And we're now rapidly moving into a petabyte regime. Terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes, and petabyte is 1,000 terabytes. So astronomy worldwide today probably has few petabytes worth of data in civilized storage, probably more, and generates at least 10 terabytes every day. And that data volume doubles ev like every year and a half, or probably every year. And uh, that's an amazing statement if you think about it. It means that the next year and a half will gather as much data in astronomy as in all of the past history. And yet, of course, our understanding of the universe doesn't double every year. Right? So there's a methodological issue here. But it's not just the size of data sets. It's the complexity that gets to be really interesting. And here I put some comparisons. Yeah, I can talk about terabytes and petabytes. But human genome that defines who you are, you know, in some biological sense, is less than one gigabyte. And human memory, effectively, is estimated to be also less than a gigabyte. Numbers vary from a few hundred megabytes to even petabyte, but they tend to be in a, in a lower range. It's not how many possible neuron connections and synapses there can be in your brain. It's how much you really do remember. And that number is probably a few hundred megabytes, which is a lot less than your laptop. And it also explains why you not only cannot remember important stuff, but you also remember things that never happened, because your brain reconstructs them out of imperfect information. A terabyte, again, is roughly speaking two million books. And humans can process information at a certain rate, and that's roughly speaking a terabyte per year. It's a lot less in text, because you can't read two million books in a year, and it's a uh, lot more if you just look at pictures, because pictures contain a lot of information. Pictures worth a lot more than a thousand words. Okay, and this is going to get much, much worse or better, however you want to think about it. Two projects that are now on drawing board are one is called Large Synoptic Survey Telescope to be built in Chile. And we expect that it will be probably built before this decade is out. It will collect data over sky repeatedly and generate about 30 terabytes every night. So in one night, it will collect as much as in one of those digital sky surveys of the recent past. And petabytes in here. And then there is a square kilometer array, array of radio telescopes, and the name derives from added com combined area of all the dishes that are involved. And that will probably take another few years to a decade. And they're talking about raw data rate of one exabyte per second exabyte being 1,000 terabytes, not 1,000 petabytes, million terabytes. Now, they'll throw away most of those bits and save only a tiny fraction of them. But still, this is a huge data rate. So we have to do something to, to cope with this. In a sense, over a span of a decade or two, we transitioned from subsistence economy to really industrial economy. Right? Here is an astronomer collecting data you know, star by star. And then on picture on the right, we can think of it as that combine is really like a telescope and truck is like a database. And so we need to develop new tools how to deal with this richness.
Now, again, I mentioned this was driven by the progress in information technology or BLSI electronics. So you can blame Gordon Moore and Carver Mead for all of our computational troubles. Um, and that causes increase in data volumes that double exponentially. So then, by extracting knowledge from these data, this is where the real action happens. And now telescope and the instrument is just like a little hardware front end. The real scientific business happens in the data system at the end, at the end of it. That's where the discoveries are made. And so scientists need to develop new skills to deal with this. So the communities of different sciences came up with this concept of virtual scientific organizations. An interesting thing was that that happened independently in a number of different fields, roughly speaking, in late 90s. That people thought that, well, uh, we have distributed data resources, compute resources, talent, and so on. And so this was a new kind of scientific organization that wasn't bound to a given institution. It was bound to a given field. In astronomy, we have virtual observatory, but you know, others have their own, medicine and geophysics and so on. And just like institutions should have finite lifetimes, so maybe lifetime of these virtual organizations ought to be short as well. And I, for one, believe that I think the time of virtual observatory has passed, uh, and we now need something new and different. So virtual observatory concept was essentially to have a complete research environment to extract knowledge from these amazing data sets that we're getting. And that means not just access to data, but tools to, to do things, to discover things. And the idea was that there may there be many archives in astronomy from space missions, from ground-based observatories and surveys, and they're seamlessly connected in some user-transparent fashion, and then you can go to your uh, computer and have one-stop shopping um, and do all of your science seamlessly by accessing <coughs> all of that information. But it doesn't quite work that way yet, but we're working on it. So virtual observatory is actually real, and it's been real for the past decade or so. It first start, started in the US with National Virtual Observatory, and we were always joking about the name, which I can tell you was invented over a beer, that it's like the Holy Roman Empire. It's neither national, nor virtual, nor it's an observatory. Uh, but it was a catchy phrase, and so now we have other catchy phrases like astroinformatics. And then Europeans immediately joined in, and, and now there is probably about 20 different national observatories worldwide, and they're all kind of connected together in, in International Virtual Observatory Alliance, comparing notes, trying not to reinvent the wheels, exchanging the data, because astronomy is a global enterprise, and astronomers do share the data in a global fashion. Well, what kind of science do we do? Well, first of all, the sheer size of the data sets on many different wavelengths enables us to do things that we couldn't do before. Um, by combining different wavelengths, we have a panchromatic view of the universe. Phenomena out there in space don't know about visible and infrared and radio and x-ray, right? Those, these are kind of artificial divisions on the basis of our technology or history. And so by combining things of different wavelengths, we can discover phenomena that were present in these data sets but could not be recognized without combining them. So this is how radio sources were discovered. And so then because we have zillions of galaxies and stars, we can do very precise mapping of large-scale structure, galactic structure, and so on. Another thing is that we can find very rare, unusual things, things that are one in a billion. 
Well, if you want to find things that are one in a billion, you better have few billion sources, right? And that's exactly what we got now. We, we couldn't do that before. So now we have well-defined ways by which we actually discover some known kinds of things that are unusual, quasars and whatnot, and hoping also to discover previously unknown kinds of things. And meanwhile, theorists have not been lazy. They've been running these huge numerical simulations of structure formation in the universe and whatnot. And um, that creates data sets by itself. So then we have to match these massive simulations, which are also many terabytes now, and going into a petabyte regime with equally big data sets. So here is just a simple example of complexity we have to deal with. Um, cosmic microwave background, you probably know, is uh, it, it's a very important cosmological tool, window into a very early universe. And from the little fluctuations in the microwave background, we can derive a lot of parameters of our universe. This was first done successfully by Andrew Lang and his collaborators here at Caltech in 1998. Um, however, before you can do cosmology with microwave background, you have to take care of all the stuff that's between you and it, which is all of the universe, and adds energy or distorts the signal or changes it in some way or absorbs it. And so you have to model and measure in different wavelengths in different fashions, all manner of other things, and only then can you actually do proper cosmology with microwave background. And so people who do this for a living really have to do very serious multi-wavelength, very data-intensive uh, job to do it. So Michelle mentioned this was part of a workshop, the public portion of which has just happened, and there is two more days of more intensive work, which is called Digging Faster and Deeper. And it's to improve the algorithms by which we can discover new things in massive data streams. And there are two particular cases that we focused on. One is the so-called synoptic sky surveys that cover the sky repeatedly many, many times and look for things that change or move. And some of our friends are looking for killer asteroids from the outer space. And if you don't think this is a problem, well, just ask the dinosaurs. Um, and there are also all manner of cosmic explosions and other interesting phenomena, relativistic jets, and so on. So it touches upon all fields of astronomy, but we need to discover these things in real time and do something about them to make them really useful. And so, for example, a small sky survey that we're doing called Catalina Sky Survey, we look at the sky, cover large areas, and compare with what was there before, and we find many, many thousands of these things that suddenly something looks much brighter than it used to be, or something appears out of nowhere, apparently. And when we find them, they all look same. They all look like a star. And some of them are a lot more interesting than others, and we have to figure out very quickly which ones are what in order to decide how to use really limited resources like CAC telescope time or Hubble or something like that. And so there is a lot of interesting and challenging processing and analysis that has to happen. Another example that people here are doing is gravitational wave astronomy. It's a field that's been born now. Caltech is one of the major partners in so-called laser interferometer gravitational observatory, LIGO. There are two of those in US, one in Europe. And they're hoping to open a new window in the universe, uh, detecting gravitational waves from merging black holes or neutron stars, or neutron stars falling into black holes. Uh, as they do that, they jigger the 
tissue of space-time a little bit that comes as a wave and it requires these facilities that have super precise laser interferometers kilometers along and they can measure displacements that are much smaller than the size of atoms. It's a fantastic technology. And there is obviously a lot of noise involved. You know, a truck goes by and that's much more vibration. And so somehow they have to dig out these subtle signals out of the immense data stream that when they're fully operational will be about petabyte per year. So virtual observatory also open up very nice way to reach and educate public. And web, generally speaking, is really the mother of all educational tools. I coined this phrase during George Bush uh, uh, era, weapons of mass instruction. It didn't get me any extra funding, unfortunately. Um, I guess you can't kill anybody with astronomy, so. Um, and of course, it's been unprecedented way to reach out. Uh, we also use astronomy not just to teach astronomy, but uh, as a way of teaching physics, and now as a way of teaching information technology and computer, computer science. Because, you know, working with galaxies is a lot more fun than, say, some dull statistics of cancer deaths or something. Um, if you came in earlier, um, you, were see, you saw the looping clip of one of the great sky browsers, the Worldwide Telescope, which is developed by Microsoft Research, and uh, Caltech had hand in that, uh, providing sky surveys, which formed the backbone of it. Uh, it. It is a wonderful tool. If you don't know it, I highly recommend you play with it. You know, it, it's based on real data, real astronomical data, and lets you explore the universe in popular sense um, uh, in a very nice way. But this broader outreach of the web really uh, has a very important consequence. You're probably familiar with you know, Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat, in which he pointed out how information technology has leveled the playing field. And that even in countries without strong industrial base, now you can have booming economy because economy is now in cyberspace. And as long as you have internet connection, you can do some really cool stuff. And so this is major factor in rise of places like India. So from our viewpoint, this is an important empowerment because now you don't have to be at Caltech or Princeton or Harvard, place like that. If you have internet connection, students anywhere, you know, North Dakota, Skunksville State College or, you know, some small town in Russia or India, they could do exact same science that we do here if they have the talent to do it. And so because human talent is spread much more than money or expensive telescopes, this opens up much broader community. And I think this will probably be the single most important impact that this revolution is having. Another thing is that um, since here is technology that is developing exponentially much faster than say art of building telescopes, and it's much cheaper because modern big telescopes or satellites are really expensive. We're now talking about billions of dollars or euros or whatever. Um, and the reason for this is they're one of a kind. Everything is super custom made and so on. In contrast to that, information technology is off the shelf. It's mass produced. Somebody else has paid for it. And it develops 10 times faster in exponential sense than any other technology. 
So this is actually a very good way to leverage your entrance into science. So I mentioned that virtual organizations served us well for the past decade or so, but now we're seeing something else happening. Uh, the rise of X-informatics, as we call it, X being astro or bio or G or whatever, so we have astroinformatics, there is bioinformatics. Essentially, these are amalgam fields between field science like astronomy and computer science and engineering. And that is important because now we can include much larger segment of our community, both as contributors, you know, people come up with clever ideas, write codes, and consumers of it. And so that is also a good mechanism by which we can share ideas and methods and, and tricks with people in other fields. So that is something that a lot of us are now engaged in and it's really, I think, probably one of the more important trends we see in sciences. Okay, so here is now a really big problem. That's data visualization. I mentioned complexity several times. And you can think of visualization is really the bridge between quantitative content of the data and intuitive understanding. Philosophers through the ages have been pointing out, you know, uh, you don't really understand anything un unless you can somehow visualize it in your head. Even mathematical truths you visualize in some way. Well, that's fine when things that you're visualizing are relatively simple, say in three dimensions, and only with visible colors and so on. But our data sets are vastly more complex than that. And therein lies a really big problem, that there are these data sets that are now in tens or hundreds, even thousands of dimensions Spaces of thousands of dimensions. We know what that means mathematically, but can you visualize that? No, because biologically we're limited not to three necessarily dimensions. We're optimized to see things and think in three dimensions. There are various tricks by which you can encode maybe up to 12 dimensions of data space in a, in a diagram, but it's not easy. Well, that's just not enough. And so some of these data sets may contain structures, meaningful structures, 60-dimensional construct that's embedded in 1,000-dimensional space of data. Yeah, I know what that means mathematically. Can you visualize it? Of course not. And this is important because you can't use these tools blindly. You have to actually see what you're doing. It, you know, are, are your assumptions about how data are distributed correct ones for the tools that they're using? And maybe not. So I would say this is building up as the single most important methodological problem for the science in 21st century. Other things like scalability of algorithms and such, we can solve with clever programming and brute force. And computing is becoming asymptotically infinitely powerful, infinitely cheap, so that's okay. But this problem you can't solve by throwing brute force on it or money. This will require some really clever new ideas. Well, here we come, I think, to the crux of it that, again, probably for the first time in history, we're in a situation where science can do what it's supposed to do. And the role of science, data analysis, is to you know, take the big, messy complexity of the world and find the simple underlying rules, the laws of nature, that can describe it all. Law of gravity affects apples or the moon in the same way. Isaac Newton figured it out. You know, simple formula, two masses, distance squared, Ta-da. But that's over. All the simple stuff's done. 
So now we have these complex things that I'm pretty sure there are things in our data that simply exceed our ability to comprehend and therefore limit what science can do. So we need to do something, we need some help. And this is, I think, where is a very important role of computation comes in. Uh, that we have carbon-based brains and we're building silicon-based brains. And machine intelligence is a growing field. If you have the latest Apple phone, then you have artificial intelligence in your pocket, Siri. And every time you use Google, you're talking to a relatively simple and very specialized machine intelligence. How do you think Google finds what you want to find? There is machine intelligence behind it. So this is no longer magic. This is something that's happening. It's getting better all the time. And so this is where I think we really will be heading. We'll be going to collaborative human computer discovery where, of course, human scientists will find things, but they really need some brains that can dig through thousands of dimensions of complexity and find interesting things for us. There are other things in how we write programs and so on. We'll soon be uh, in a stage where computers will be writing programs because humans are fallible. Humans always put bugs in programs. So someday, you know, Skynet becomes alive and goodbye humans, but um, I don't think that will happen. I think we're, we're growing into a, a real synergy or symbiosis. So remember the fourth paradigm? And so now I think I can say what I think is really new here. The first thing is it enables profitable data mining, finding diamonds in the dirt, things that you couldn't see before until you had huge amounts of data to search through and with proper tools. It's data fusion, being able to combine vast data sets, say, obtain at different wavelengths that reveal new kinds of phenomena that we couldn't see before. And the business of complexity, using machine intelligence to help us analyze and understand our data because that's, of course, what we want to do. So let's say the combination of these is what really makes this new science. But again, theorists are also not lazy and they do run these simulations like simulations of structure in the, in the universe or star formation. And the one on the bottom is turbulence, which is a notoriously one problem of classical physics that could never be solved analytically. And now we know why. Um, people who run these simulations don't do it because they're stupid or lazy. They do it because there is no other way of tackling these problems. That you can prove analytically that you cannot analytically solve these problems. So a simple example is in gravitational physics. Newton's gravity, never mind Einstein, right? So two masses, one, they'll orbit about common center of mass. This is what Newton figured out. That's what gives you Kepler's law. Any physics freshman can do this in half a page easily. Okay? Add third mass. Oops. Poincaré, who's a great mathematician, proved in 19th century that there are no analytical solutions for three-body problem in gravity. And a galaxy might have a couple of hundred billion mass points and then collides with thousands of others. So we're doing these simulations not because it's too hard to solve equations. That it cannot be done analytically. We have to mimic in the computer what Mother Nature does out there. That's the only way to do it. 
Now, that's just simple gravitation. Think about biological systems of climate. So, biology is notorious for being very empirical and not having proper theory. And I think they'll never have analytical theory because they're inherently too complex. That biological systems will always be, have to be attacked in analytical form, in, in numerical form. So, this now really reaches into the, the very heart of what does it mean to understand the universe. Philosophers of science call epistemology is um, the way how do we learn and understand things. And so there are a number of interesting questions. This is not engineering. This is not off-the-shelf technology. It's like, what does it mean that you understood something if you can only mimic it in a machine? And is there a complexity threshold beyond which there are no analytical theories? Or is there a complexity threshold where something about measurements changes? And we don't know. It's a combination of theory and data that leads to understanding. And now theory is also expressed as data, an output of simulation. And this is a new thing. Theory used to be formulae, right? And write the formula and then predict something forever, right? You can't do this. There is a system, you know exactly what, what makes it tick, you know, gravity, for example, but you still have to run full-blown simulation to see what will happen. You, you can't write the equation and figure out what will happen. This is a very profound intellectual shift that most scientists actually haven't understood yet. So e-science is really transitional thing all sciences will become. Several this is computational science, it's not computer science. Computer science is a very important field. And we rely on computer scientists to help us with some of these tools. But we're actually using those tools to do domain sciences like astronomy or biology. And that's a different thing. Now, there is a lot of emphasis on data, but actually it's completely incidental to what we do. Our job is to discover knowledge, and people shouldn't forget that. Another point is that I made earlier is that data are cheap, but expertise is expensive. And that's just like hardware and software. Hardware is becoming exponentially cheaper and faster and better, but software is not getting any better. And the reason for that is that software is written by humans, and humans don't get exponentially better. We have a fixed throughput, fixed uh, intelligence, speaking, and so that's going to be a very limiting factor. Another interesting thing is that now, now computer science is new mathematics in the following sense. It provides orderly, logical framework within which you can describe other sciences. Exactly what mathematics was supposed to be doing and has been doing for centuries. But now it's computation. It's not analytical math. And so, so that's, again, a very interesting intellectual development. And also, because it's universal, it's just like mathematics is universal, statistics is universal, it provides a glue between different disciplines, the way to bridge interdisciplinary divides. And all important problems today are really highly interdisciplinary. Climate change, sustainability, these are not only physics or chemistry or biology problems. They're very interdisciplinary problems. And because we have academia that's very compartmentalized. This is very important as having a common language of new data-driven computational science.
Another important part of what we do is we publish. And that has evolved through years, starting from scratches on, on stone tablets, and the famous metaphor of cathedral and the book that before printing press, story was told in windows in the cathedral. And then when Gutenberg started printing Bibles, suddenly you didn't have to build a cathedral in your backyard. You know, everybody could have one. Um, and now, of course, we're migrating to fully digital information storage access and so on. So in science, we are now seeing proliferation of different forms of publishing. Databases, archives, blogs, wikis, multimedia, all kinds of stuff that doesn't fit in the old dead trees paradigm. I mean, even just in regular life, you can tell newspapers as printed on paper are dying and books will follow very soon. And you can think about this as you read your New York Times on your iPad or, or read your new, new bestseller on your Kindle. Um, the content's there, the content's still important, but we're moving from dead tree media to fully digital. And that's great. So there is all manner of interesting issues that academia needs to resolve in doing this. We still say, we, I published a paper, even though paper is not involved. It's bits from the beginning to the end. But we still mimic printed paper in what we do. So publishing has to evolve. And that's a component of broader issue of how do we communicate with each other, how do we preserve knowledge, how would you share knowledge. And of course, you know, there's been historical development of that, you know, from handwritten to printed press and from just Pony Express through newspapers to telegraph and telephone and well, television. Now it's all digital. Everything is going through the medium of internet. So is that the end of civilization? Well, of course not. Something new and better is going to come after the internet and the web. And we don't know yet what is going to be. But you know, usually new technology comes in and starts using infrastructure of the previous one, like telephone first used the wires laid down for telegraph. Then later on, telephone companies read the better cables. Internet started using telephone wires. Now then they lay out optical fiber. Something will come after internet even better. So the trend is always that it, it increases immediacy. You don't have to wait six months for a reply letter to come back. You can talk to somebody right away, anywhere in the world. And fidelity is increasing from one-dimensional text to now two-dimensional pictures or three-dimensional video if you want picture plus time. So that's also very important for business of education. Um, universities, I'm sorry to say, are being very lazy in adopting information technology to conduct one of their main functions of educating public. And that's crazy because all of the human knowledge, but all of the human knowledge is now easily accessible to your fingertips on the internet. And we can preserve great lectures by people like Feynman. And if you can watch Feynman's lecture, why would you go to a boring lecture by myself or something like that? There is iTunes University, wikis, blogs, all kinds of stuff. And we're just beginning to roughly use it and not nearly as much as we should. So I think there'll be, it's, uh, there is a great revolution brewing in the way people are being educated. And 
I think universities as they are consist conceived now are obsolete. They will have to change completely the way they operate, not just university, any schools. So that'll be another interesting thing to watch. You can ask yourself, where does science happens? Science happens on interfaces between human minds with each other and human minds and some informational constructs, whether it's text in a paper or, or data, images on your computer screen and so on. This is where new ideas originate and get refined. So any technology that helps this interaction of human minds with each other with informational constructs is really good and important. And in computing, we've been evolving. First, we had just terminals, ASCII text, one-dimensional. And now we have web browsers with two-dimensional display of information. And what's beginning now is three-dimensional displays of information through immersive virtual reality technologies. Now, this is, I think, brewing revolution that's comparable in its potential to the web itself, probably more. And the reason for this is, I think, that we are optimized to, to be in 3D, to interact with other people or, or objects or, or anything in 3D. The whole two-dimensional paper and two-dimensional computer screen that mimics paper paradigm is just historical technological artifact. And if we could do it in 3D, we will. And thanks to Hollywood uh, and thanks to games industry, we're rapidly moving in that direction. And after Avatar the movie made a couple of billion dollars in two weeks or something like that, Hollywood paid attention. So now they're going 3D whole hog and industry that makes displays is going there and so on. Um, we're also starting to interact with computers in a different way. There are haptic interfaces, uh, the best one of which is Kinect, um, which actually recognizes your motions and captures them and translates them in co into computer form. I think that, that, that is a revolutionary device. It's probably the single most important thing that Microsoft has ever done, never mind Windows. Kinect's gonna be it. And before too long, I think, five years, 10 at most, we'll have full 3D web and we'll have some smooth mix of augmentative and immersive virtual reality. So with some colleagues, we decided to experiment and find out you know, what can this technology do for science? And we formed a Meta Institute of Computational Astrophysics, which is an experiment, and it's the first, and I think so far the only, professional scientific organization that's based in virtual worlds. And if you think we're nuts, we just wait a few years. So uh, we've been using a couple different things, one called Quack, and it's now called Telepress Place, and Second Life, and now we're working in so-called OpenSIM worlds. We're working with Intel Labs, in Oregon that are very interested in this. Intel thinks that 3D web is going to be all and end all of computing, that that's going to be the core of their business and they're investing very heavily into understanding how that works. Uh, actually, there is a lot of scholarly work already going on in immersive virtual reality, mostly in humanities, sociology and economics. People can actually model the real societies and there is also situational training, military is using very much you know, it's easier to build virtual Fallujah and see what happens. Um, businesses of all sorts. IBM used to have most of their intra-company meetings in immersive virtual reality. Now, I'm not sure that they're stuck to that, but. Okay, 
So what do we do? Um, we had a series of seminars, professional seminars, just like we do in real life. Somebody comes with PowerPoint, people ask questions and so on. And this handsome avatar here in the corner is Sean Carroll. Um, he's a really excellent popularizer of science, talking about some ideas of dark matter he had. We had group collaboration meetings, including for this workshop as well, that we actually meet in virtual spaces and discuss things around virtual tables. And you think this is crazy, but it actually works. And at least you think we're completely crazy. We even had a Nobel laureate, um, John Matter, give a couple public lectures in, in a professional seminar, emergency second life. So this is just early days, early days. Things are happening. What really interests me is how we can use this for immersive exp uh, exploratory data visualization. That now scientists can walk into their data with their colleagues and look around and examine things. And there is something about human perception that really makes this far better experience or, or more insightful thing than just looking at the flat screen. And people who are figuring out how that works. So there are chemists who make 3D models of giant molecules that can fly around and, and we, can, we actually have data from sky surveys displayed and, and so on. Actually, very soon, maybe even next week, virtual Caltech will open for business, a little virtual world of our own that we will use to con continue these experiments, mostly in data visualization, but also for collaboration purposes as well. So this is where this is moving. The immersive web, for lack of a better word, I think it probably, you know, it's going to be called something else. Um, all of human knowledge, information, everything is now on the web or internet. That's not going to change, it's just our interface to it is going to get far more powerful. Just what writers of cyberpunk science fiction always said. And you're probably skeptical, I was too, until I actually tried it. I thought this was just video games for grown-ups until I actually experimented and found out this is really important. This is going to be huge. And so one thing that we're wrestling with is how do you optimally display information in what's essentially going to be 3D equivalent of websites that in an intuitive, easy-to-grasp fashion, right? 3D web browser, if you will. Um, well, we'll see. So. Scientist today sits in front of her or his computer all day and uses it to access their data and other people's data, numerical simulations, literature. All of our literature is on the web, all of it. And that's how people find out, communicate with their colleagues, do the analysis. Astronomers no longer have to go to a telescope. In fact, it's better if they don't because robotic telescopes make fewer mistakes. And you know, we're transitioning slowly in that regime. But I would say most of the work of a scientist today happens not in the lab per se, but in, in front of a computer. That computers talk, talks to instruments and so on. So that's what I meant the science in cyberspace. We're almost completely there. Um, and the trend keeps going towards ever more intensive virtualization. So here is a speculation, right? This is 
a very powerful example of what's been happening since we stopped being monkeys and, and developed opposable thumbs to grasp things. There's a famous scene in 2001, Space Odyssey, the classic movie, where this proto-human discovers he can grasp a bone to use as a tool or a weapon, throws it in the air, and flips and turns into a spinning space station. And that's one of the most famous cuts in the history of cinema. Well, okay. So technology has been changing us as we invented. We can't run nearly as fast, perhaps, as we now Google is changing the way we remember things because you don't have to remember anything. Um, and once we start having technology that touches us where it really counts in our minds, that is guaranteed to have an evolutionary effect on human species. And it operates on a faster pace than anything ever in history. Of course, I have no idea where it's going. So I think we're, we are going to see acceleration of our evolution as species together, perhaps with intelligences that we make ourselves. And we're moving from information technology to cognition technology. So to recap the important ideas here, I think science, as long as everything else, is moving into cyberspace. That's where we interact with each other, with information, with everything. And science in 21st century has become immensely data rich. It's different. It's enabled by computing. It requires different tools, different scientific methodology. And a lot of the stuff that we do that we need to understand our data really has much broader applicability because it's not just scientific data, it's everything else in modern society. And not only are these technologies the fastest developing technologies ever, but they're also paid for by somebody else, right? And so it's a strategically good leverage for scientists to use. So finally, I thought there is a speculation that, yeah, we are co-evolving. Science and technology are co-evolving. They're co-evolving with society. We're co-evolving with it, too. And I'll just end with this quote from Jim Gray, a visionary scientist, and take any questions you may have. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Caltech. Visit us at caltech.edu.